You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Open up to John chapter 5. And we're going to read together, beginning at verse 17. We'll read through the end of verse 23. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we desire today to see Jesus. That is what we want to see in this passage of Scripture. We want to honor Him, so that in honoring Him we might honor You. We pray, O Spirit of God, that You would open our eyes and illuminate our hearts. We believe that in the unfolding of Your Word there is light, And by your word, we see all other things. We pray that you would inform not just our intellect, but our wills and our hearts to be obedient to your word. We pray that you would help us to catch a fresh vision of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be conformed into his image as a result of our time together in your word. May your word be our guide, we ask, and may you help us to understand it and to talk about it appropriately and to discuss very difficult things that you might be pleased with us and our gathering and our thinking here together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever wished that you could have been on the scene of some of the great miracles in the Bible? Wish that you could have been there. Have you ever read through, I do this, I read through Scripture and I come across one of those stories about um, something that happened and I think to myself, well, I wish I could have been there to take that in with my very own eyes and see that for myself. And I actually hope that when we do get to heaven that we'll be able to relive or at least see some of those moments in the past, I've thought maybe it'd be nice to just to be able to see a DVD presentation of it in video high definition with Dolby surround sound. But now technology has made me wish that maybe in the future in heaven we'll be able to be like in virtual reality and just sit right in the scene and see it all unfold in front of us. It's not, it's not because I think that I need those things in order to believe. I believe what is written and I believe what happened in the scripture happened exactly as it is written. So I don't need to see those things in order to believe. But I'm the type of person that likes to be front and center in whatever is going on. Not necessarily involved, but I like to be the one that's right up next to the yellow police tape and all the crowd is behind me and I want to see firsthand. I want to be right on the spot. I want everybody, I'm not the type of person who can sit at the back of the crowd and say, what's happening up there and and have it passed back to me and oh, okay, I don't need to see it. I'm the type of person that wants to be right in the middle of the action. So I would love to have been there when Jesus walked on water to have seen him multiply bread and fish. I would love to have been in the pool that day to see him raise the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. I would love to have seen him calm the storm. I would love to have seen him cast out demons and heal the sick and raise Lazarus from the dead. I would love to have seen all of those things. There's something in me that wants to 
be right in the middle of that kind of action and to see it for myself. And it's not because I'm a wicked and perverse generation and I like signs and wonders. I just like spectacular things and I like to see them firsthand. Well, it dawned on me this last week that the greatest demonstration of the sovereignty of Christ and the power of Christ are not past. They're yet future. And not only are they yet future, but I'm going to get to witness them. And not only am I going to get to witness them, I realized this last week, I'm going to experience the miracles. Sometimes we read through Scripture, we get to like John 5 with the man, the paralyzed man at the pool, and I've asked you to put yourself in his position and see the events as they would unfold through the person who actually benefits from the miracle. And wouldn't it be, well, it wouldn't be great to be paralyzed for 38 years, but wouldn't it be great to be able to just have a miracle like that affected on your body and to feel that demonstration of power? But then I realized, you know what, one of these days, we are going to be front and center and be the recipients of an even greater miracle than just being allowed to walk after being paralyzed. One of these days, this body is going to come out of the dust and I am going to be raised to newness of life in an eternal, glorified, resurrected body fit for everlasting joy, everlasting bliss, everlasting worship and service, and everlasting life on a new heavens and a new earth. And that's not something that I just get to watch. That's something that I actually get to experience myself. Isn't that wild? The greatest demonstrations of the power and the majesty and the sovereignty of Jesus were not while He walked this earth. The greatest demonstrations of those attributes are yet future. And you and I are not just going to get a front row seat. You and I are going to be the recipients of that. We ourselves are going to experience something even greater than Lazarus experienced. I would ask you this. What what is a greater demonstration of power? Raising a corpse back to physical life or taking a body that has been dead, long dead, and gone into dust and ashes and resurrecting that to glorious, powerful, eternal form, which is the greatest miracle, which is the greater miracle. Furthermore, what is a greater miracle? Raising one man or raising all men? Raising all men. The resurrection of all men is yet future. And what Jesus is describing in John chapter 5 is his part in giving life eventually to all men. Not actually his part, his work. His work, his sovereign work of giving resurrection life to all men. That is the greater miracle. So we're in John chapter 5. We got to verse 20 last week. We're going to be looking at verse 21 this week. I want to remind you of sort of the context and what sets this up. The issue at hand is work. Keep that in mind. The issue of hand at hand is work. That's what the whole controversy is about. He did a work on the Sabbath when he shouldn't have been working. So then he says in verse 17, My father has been working until now, and I myself am working. What God has done and what God does on the Sabbath, I do. That was the claim. I'm equal to him in nature, equal to him in power, equal to him in authority. I'm equal to him in work. Whatever he does on the Sabbath, that's the work that I do. If you're upset about the work of healing a man, consider the greater work that I do every Sabbath. The Father has been working, and I myself do all of the works that the Father does. Well, the Jews got upset with that, understandably, because that was a claim to deity. So in verse 18, they set apart to they get ready to stone him. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus takes all of that he said in verse 17, unfolds it, sort of takes it all up to a whole new level and says, no, you, if you're going to persecute me, I want you to understand exactly the claim that I'm making. In order to remove all doubt from their minds as to what claim he was making, he says to them, 
All the work that I do with the Father, I don't do on my own. In fact, nothing that I do is my own working. I can do nothing unless it is something the Father has given to me and shown me to do. And all, whatever the Father does, that's what I do. And all that I do is actually the work of the Father. Because the Father loves the Son, the Father has given into the Son's hands all things, so that everything the Son does is itself the work of the Father. And greater works than just healing a man by a pool, I am going to do, the Son is going to do, because greater works the Father is going to give to me to do. And then we ask, well, what type of greater work is it than healing a man at the pool that the Father is going to give and has given to the Son? Jesus gives two such greater works. The first is in verse 21. That is the work of resurrection. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whomever He wishes. That's the first work, the work of resurrection. Then there is a second work that the Father is going to give to the Son. In fact, He has committed to the Son this entire task. Verse 22. Judgment. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. The work of resurrection and the work of judgment are under the power and the prerogative of the Son. So just as the Father gives life to whomever He wills, even so, He has given that to the Son, and the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. But all the judgment, the Father's not going to judge anybody, all the judgment from the triune God is going to take place through the Son. All the judgment of all men has been given to the Son because, as John 3.35 says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. So that everything that is possessed by the Father in its fullness also belongs to the Son. And the work of resurrection and the work of judgment are the works of the Son. These things the Son does just as the Father has given them to the Son and just as the Father shows the Son, so the Son does those works. Now you can see that in verse 21 and 22 that Jesus is not backing down from His claim to deity. You notice that? In fact, He is saying to them, if you're going to persecute Me, you might as well let's make sure that you are crystal clear. Crystal clear as to what I'm describing to you. Jesus could have mollified His critics. He could have softened them. He could have calmed them down a little bit. Probably could have alleviated the heat. If Jesus had just said something like this, I said to you that the Father is working until now, and I myself am working, but here's what I mean by that. You guys are getting way too upset over this whole statement. Here's what I meant to say. What I meant to say was that the Father exercises compassion, and I exercise compassion. The Father does good things, and I do good things. I'm just trying to imitate the Father who is in heaven. If Jesus had simply said that, if Jesus had just simply sort of softened it down a little bit and said, God does a lot of good things, a lot of great things on the Sabbath, those are the type of things that I try and do on the Sabbath as well. If he had said that, his critics might have said, all right, it didn't exactly sound like what you were saying in verse 17, but I can see how you would take that. You're just trying to imitate the Father who is in heaven. That would have sort of softened the whole thing, but Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he takes his claim in verse 17, and he unfolds it in such a way as to say, the works that I'm claiming to do are the works that belong exclusively to God. These are the works that God does. So there are two of them, verse 21 and 22, resurrection and judgment. They are connected, but they're very distinct works. And so we're going to talk, we're going to begin discussing the subject of resurrection this morning, and then we will take up the subject of judgment next week and talk about what scripture says about the judgment that is to come. So first, the resurrection. In, in verse 21, Jesus is claiming two things. First, the power to resurrect men, and second, the prerogative of resurrection. The power and the prerogative. He claims the power to do it, just as the Father does this, so I have the power to do this. And then the prerogative. I do this, Jesus says, to whomever I wish, to whomever I will. That is the sovereign prerogative of resurrection. 
and it belongs to the Son. So verse 21, and I want you to hear verse 21 through the ears of a Jew. I want you to hear this as if you're sitting there with a Jewish mindset, Jewish thinking, and I want you to put yourself in first century Judaism, and I want you to be able to hear what Jesus says as one of his hearers would have originally heard it. Verse 21, we'll take the first half. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Stop right there for just a second. This is what we would call common ground. There's not any one of Jesus' hearers that would have had any problem with the statement that he made at the beginning of verse 21. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. It was a common teaching in Judaism that God was a giver of life. That He was the sovereign over life. That all life came from Him. He was the creator of life. He was the giver of all life. He, he had perfect life in and of Himself. Nobody had given Him life. And He had the power to raise the dead. All Jews would have understood that except for and, and embraced that, except for a small, liberal, but influential group of Sadducees. And they denied the sovereignty of God. They denied the existence of angels. They denied life after death, rewards and punishment. And they denied the resurrection of the dead, physical bodies. Those were the Sadducees. A small but very influential group. But apart from them, most of Judaism, all of the rabbis, all of the conservatives, all of your average people on the street would have affirmed this fundamental teaching that God is the one who raises the dead. There was a a common saying among the rabbis, quote, three keys are in the hand of God and they're not giving into the hand of any other agent, namely that of the rain, that of the womb, and that of raising the dead. So the rabbis used to say there are three things that God and only God does. He sends the rain, He opens and closes the womb, and He raises the dead. Those three things are in the hand of God and He commits them to no other being. There was a common Jewish prayer, an ancient prayer of the Jews that had these phrases, Blessed art thou, O Lord, the shield of Abraham. Thou art mighty forever, O Lord. Thou restorest life to the dead, who sustainest, who sustainest the living with beneficence, quickenest the dead. Who can compare unto thee, O King, who killest and makest alive again? And faithful art thou to quicken the dead. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who restores the dead. That's how the Jews would pray. That's how the Jews understood God. He is the God of resurrection. He is the one who would eventually raise all men. So Jesus' hearers would have had no problem with that first statement, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. That was a common Jewish teaching. This is common ground. He can agree with the Jews on that. He can agree with the Pharisees on that. That was the common teaching of the Old Testament passages. And we're going to have a chance as we get later on into John 5 to kind of unpack these. But I want you to listen to the Old Testament text that promised and spoke of a physical resurrection. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. This describes God's power to raise the dead. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. By the way, did you know that God kills you? God's going to be the one to kill you? I said that to my kids one time during devotions, I don't know, about two weeks ago. I made the statement, when it's your time to go, God's going to kill you. And this, Deidre said, you should probably soften that a little bit. And I said, but that's the way it is. That's, God's going to be the one to kill you. He's the one. I mean, he just your heart stops beating and that's it. He either allows somebody else to kill you or he kills you. Either way, God's the one who's going to end your life right on schedule. That's what Scripture teaches. God is the one who kills. You're not going to live one heartbeat longer than God wants you to live. When it's your time to go, God's going to kill you. And I would rather have God be the one to kill me than anybody else. Wouldn't you? I'm glad that the giver of all life and the God who is gracious and kind and good is going to be the one to take my life. I wouldn't want anybody else taking it. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Ezekiel 37, 13. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves 
and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. For Samuel 2.6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And then there were Old Testament prophecies of the coming physical resurrection of all men. Like Job 19, verses 26 and 27, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Did you catch that? Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. That was the Old Testament hope. The oldest book of the Old Testament, Job, knew and believed in a future resurrection. Even after this body is decayed, yet I will in my flesh see God. Further in Job 19, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. Isaiah 26:19. your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. Your dew is the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Daniel 12, verse 2 spoke of the resurrection of all men. Daniel 2, verse 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. There are two resurrections. The resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. The resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. The resurrection to life and the resurrection to eternal damnation. Hebrews chapter 11 described Abraham's hope all the way back. Abraham, the author of Hebrews, says he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Paul in Acts chapter 24 verse 15 spoke of his critics, those Pharisees and Jews who were persecuting him. Paul said, I have a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And then in Acts 26 verse 8 before Agrippa, Paul says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God should raise the dead? Which all of his critics would have to admit. It's not incredible that God should raise the dead because everybody agreed that God was the one who ultimately would raise the dead. God is the giver of life. He is the sovereign of life. He is the one who is, who is controlled providentially over all life. He's the one who kills. He's the one who makes alive. And ultimately, He will be the one who resurrects both the righteous and the unrighteous, some to everlasting joy, others to everlasting damnation. God is the one who will do this work of resurrection. And all of the Jews conservative Jews, Sadducees aside, all of the Jews recognized that God was the one who would someday grant to His people physical bodies in a physical paradise to stand and behold the glory of God and see Him with their eyes. That was their hope. We cherish this hope, Paul said, that there will be this resurrection and God is the one who do it. So, verse 21, John chapter 5, no controversy so far. Just as the Father gives life to all men and raises all men, here's the rub. Even so, the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. See, that was the rub. They could agree that the Father, that God gives life, and Jesus would affirm that. God is the giver of life. Even so, the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. Do you understand the rub there? They could agree with Him on the first half of that statement, but the second half of that statement was in itself a claim to deity. People who don't believe in the deity of Christ will often say, Jesus never said the words, I am God in Scripture in the New Testament. That's true. He never uttered those words, I am God. But he did say this, God is sovereign over resurrection. God is the one who will raise all men. And I am the one who will raise all men. Now, what does that sound like to you? You can put two and two together, right? That's just one of the many prerogatives, one of the many prerogatives of divine deity and divine work that Jesus claimed as his very own. This is a claim to deity. God gives life to all men. I give life to all men. God will raise all men. I will raise all men. God Himself is the author of life. I am the author of life. God is sovereign over life. I am sovereign over life. He is putting Himself as equal with God in this act of resurrection. 
And that is itself a claim to deity. Now the astute reader, which I know everybody here is, is going to immediately be thinking in their minds, but there are two different types of resurrection, right? There are two different kinds of resurrection. There is physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection. There's physical life, physical death, physical resurrection, like Lazarus, for instance, enjoyed physical life, experienced physical death, and was physically resurrected. And then there is spiritual life and spiritual death and spiritual resurrection. So which type of life is Jesus describing? Which type of resurrection and giving of life is Jesus describing? Physical or spiritual? Should I take a vote as to what you think it is? We don't need to take a vote. Somebody else is shaking their head. We don't need to take a vote. You know, all we need to do is just look at the context. Look down to verse 24. Look down to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, which one, physical or spiritual, is verse 24 describing? Eternal life, passed out of death into life. Do you see the analogy there? It's describing the spiritual resurrection, spiritual life and spiritual death. Does that answer our question? Not entirely. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, is that describing the physical resurrection or the spiritual resurrection? That's describing the physical resurrection of all men. So in verse 21, which is Jesus laying claim to? The power of physical resurrection or the power of spiritual resurrection? Yes. That's it. Both. He is laying claim to both of those. Both of those are His power. Both of those are under His prerogative. And both of those, though they are separate events, sometimes separated by thousands of years, uh, for instance, Paul was raised spiritually, but has Paul been raised physically from the dead? Not at all. He received spiritual life and came, passed from death into life spiritually, but he has not yet been physically raised. So those, those events are separated, in some cases, by thousands of years. Hopefully in our case, not by thousands of years, but by thousands of years, they are closely connected events. In fact, you cannot have physical resurrection to eternal life unless you have first spiritual resurrection to spiritual life. And to have one is to have the other. Even though chronologically those events happen years apart or are separated, they are separate, though they are incredibly and distinct, but though they are incredibly bound together. To have the one is to have the other in God's mind and in God's economy. Turn over to John chapter 6. I want you to see how these two are connected together. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now I want you to, as we're going through this, I want, is, here, hold on, everybody look up here for just a second. As we're going through the John chapter 6, 35 through 40, I want you to be listening in your mind for the resurrection language and be asking yourself, what is he describing, physical or spiritual resurrection? Which of these two? Or both? Or are they kind of blurred together? John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 40. Do you see the two different types of resurrection? 
He who believes in me, beholds me, and believes in me will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Two different types of resurrection. There is spiritual resurrection, there is physical resurrection, but they are so closely connected that Jesus can say, all that the Father has given to me will believe, I will, they will come, I will cast none of them out, and all of them, without losing any of them, I will raise all of them up at the last day. Because all of those who believe in me will have eternal life, and all of those who have eternal life will be raised up at the last day. Isn't that a glorious promise? Those two resurrections are intimately connected because to have the one, to be given eternal life, is to be given the guarantee, the guarantee of physical resurrection on the last day. In fact, four times in this passage, the term, I will raise him up at the last day, is used. It's used in verse 39. I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. He will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up at the last day. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's being emphasized in John chapter 6? Physical resurrection or spiritual resurrection? Yes. Both. Both of those are the the subject of John chapter 6, and they are woven together. To have the one, to possess the one, is to be vouchsafed, guaranteed, that you will possess likewise the other. Why? Because Jesus said, I will lose none. All who come to me, I will give eternal life, and all to whom I give eternal life, I will raise up without losing a single one of them. That is physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection. So now we would ask, how is it that I as a Christian can believe and be guaranteed salvation? How is it that I can have the guarantee that I will actually stand in my flesh and behold the face of God? Because the very one whom I have trusted, whom I have placed my confidence in, the very one whom I have placed my faith in is the one who said, just as the Father gives life and resurrects, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Does the Son wish to give me eternal and physical life by regenerating me and by resurrecting me from the dead. Is that the wish? Is that the desire of the Son? It most certainly is because the Son's desire is to do the will of the Father. And what is the Father's will? That of all that the Father has given to Him, and I am one of them, He's not going to lose lose me. It is the Son's will, His desire, to raise me up at the last day, and He will do it. The very one I have trusted is Jesus Christ Himself. That is why he says in John chapter 4 to the woman, Come to me, I'll give you living waters, and you will live. In John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life, come to me, I will give you life. John chapter 7, if you're thirsty, come to me, I will give you life. John chapter 8, I'm the light of the world, come to me, I will give you the light of life. John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd, I've come that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. In John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. How can he make those claims? He can make those claims because he himself is the one who is the author and the sovereign over all life. He is the one who kills and makes alive. He is the one who has the keys of death and of Hades. And he is the one who himself is the sovereign creator and giver of all life. Physical life and spiritual life are under his prerogative. That's what he means at the end of verse 21 when he says, the son gives life to whom he wills. The son gives life to whom he wills. That's kind of an odd statement, especially in light of what he just said in verse 20. Do you remember verse 20? I can do nothing 
of my own accord. Unless it is something that the Father shows me, the Son does what the Father does. But I can do nothing of my own initiative, my own accord, of my own being. So which is it, Jesus? Is it that you can do nothing except the Father show it? Or is it that you give life to whomever you wish? Because verse 21 seems to be a statement of absolute sovereignty, to do whatever He wants to do. And yet verse 19 and 20 seem to be Jesus saying that He is restricted to only do the things that the Father allows Him to do. So which is it? Is He sovereign over all of life? He gives life to whomever He wills. Or is it that He only does the things that the Father gives Him to do? Yes. Again, because He and the Father are one in nature, one in will, one in purpose, so that, guess what? The Son gives life to whomever He wishes, and the Father gives life to whomever He wishes. And we saw in John chapter 3, the Spirit gives life to whomever He wishes. So are these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all at odds with one another, each one giving life to a group of people that they wish to give life to, independent of the other two? No. The will of the Father is to give life to the exact same people in the exact same way and the exact same kind of life that it is the will of the Son to do so and the will of the Spirit to do so. So Jesus can say, it is, I give life to whomever I want to give life to. And then what we find out is that the very ones that He gives life to are the very ones that the Father wanted Him to give life to and that the Spirit Himself wants to give life to because the three are one in purpose and one in plan, one in will and power. Amazing things. The Son gives life to whomever He wishes. He is not constrained and He is not restrained in giving life. That is, I cannot force Him and I cannot coerce Him to give me life or to give life to anybody else. And I cannot keep Him from giving me life or from giving life to somebody else. He is neither constrained nor restrained in His exercise of His resurrection power because the Son gives life to whomever He wills. And it is His will that determines who receives life and who does not receive life. It is not to the man who wills or to the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. That is what it depends upon. And it is the Son Himself who is sovereign in resurrection. It is the Father who is sovereign in resurrection. And it is the Spirit who is sovereign in resurrection. And yet we do not worship three sovereigns, but one sovereign. One sovereign God. And the Son gives life to whom He wishes. Jesus Christ is Lord of life. And He gives life to whomever He wishes. He is sovereign over that. He has the power of resurrection, and he exercises the prerogative of resurrection. Now, to the unbeliever, this is terrifying news. Terrifying, but encouraging. Terrifying for this reason, because if you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here, you're saying to yourself, I am terrified by the thought that the only way that I can have eternal life is that I have to come to the Son and lay down my arms of rebellion and bow the knee and humble myself in penitence and believe and entrust the one that I've spent my whole life warring against. That is a terrifying thought, to know that you cannot give yourself eternal life. You cannot do anything to, to get it. God's not a vending machine. You can't just go and do a certain thing and sort of get the product without having to embrace the whole machine. God is something entirely different. You actually have to come to the only source, the only source of eternal life. And you have to penitently lay down your arms and repent of your rebellion and embrace and trust the very one who can give you life. To an unbeliever, that is a terrifying thought. Terrifying. But it's also encouraging in this regard. To know that I have the promise of the Son that all who come to Him, He will not cast any of them away. So that if I'm a rebellious sinner, I can be, I, I am terrified by the fact that I have to come to this one person whom I have spent my life warring against. I have to come to Him as the only source for eternal life. 
But I'm encouraged by the fact that I have His promise that if I do come and I lay down my arms and I bow the knee before Him in repentant faith that He will not cast me out. He will indeed grant me eternal life. And then on the other side of that, I find out it was His desire to give me life. And actually, it was His desire that brought me to Him for life to begin with. And now to the believer, this is, this is incredibly assuring, isn't it? This is our confidence and our hope. Verse 21 describes our confidence and our hope. What is my confidence as a believer? That I can say with utter confidence this, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep everything that I have committed unto Him until that day. He is able to do it. Jesus does not have to go to a third party to get permission to give me life. He does not have to go to somebody else to get permission or power to resurrect me from the dead. He Himself, the very one I have trusted and vouchsafed my eternity to, He is able to keep everything that I have committed to Him until that day. What day? The day when He will raise us up. That last day when Jesus says, All that the Father has given to me, I will raise all of them up. That is physical resurrection. Before you can have that, you have to be born again and you have to have spiritual resurrection. But if you have been born again and you have received spiritual resurrection, friends, it is absolutely certain with 100% guarantee that you will also enjoy the physical resurrection on the last day. That is God's promise to us. And it's because all of that power and all of that prerogative of resurrection has been given and is and belongs to the Son. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for your word, for the confidence and assurance that you have given us in it. We thank you for the clarity of these things and the hope they bring to our hearts. It, it stirs our hearts to see such a great God with such a great plan of salvation and so much that has been given to your Son. We thank you that you love us because we are in your Son and not because we have made ourselves lovable or because we are lovable. We thank you also that you will raise us to spiritual life and eternal life with you. We thank you for the power and the prerogative of resurrection which belongs to the very Savior that we have trusted and that those, that power and those prerogatives will be exercised on our behalf for our benefit someday. Thank you for your gracious promises to us. In the name of your dear Son, Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.